Coming up on Tech Nation, success in treating several very rare diseases, success as in new FDA approvals for treatments in SMA, spinal muscular atrophy, and NMOSD, neuromyelitis optica spectrum disorder. I speak with Dr. Levi Garraway, the chief medical officer of Genentech, to talk about these breakthroughs. Then, a condition we've had all our lives, and the FDA doesn't even recognize it as a medical condition, aging. I speak with Dr. Thomas Rando, co-founder of Fountain Therapeutics and a professor at Stanford University School of Medicine. All this and more coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. In 2017, I spoke with Derek Thompson, a senior editor at The Atlantic and author of Hitmakers, The Science of Popularity in the Age of Distraction. When I started reading his book, I realized that I didn't really understand popularity, as in the nature of popularity, its very definition. So I asked him, what is popularity? Mm, we're starting with the easy ones. Oh, um, good. <laughs> <laughs> what is popularity is a great question. I think you can break it down into two categories. The first category would be attention. It's what we pay attention to. But the second category is appeal. It's what we like. It's what we love. And we don't always like and love that which we pay attention to. I think about this in terms of TV ratings. Sometimes the shows with the highest TV ratings are sometimes hate-watched. People watch that show, uh, they tune in, but they despise the thing that they're looking at, uh, whether it's the news or sometimes even a reality show. And so popularity isn't just what we pay attention to. It's also what we love. And this is a book that's very much about the psychology of appeal, the psychology of why we like what we like. But it's also about the economic markets that sometimes determine that which we pay attention to. So I try to keep both in mind. Well, certainly the economic markets will at some point create popularity so that the economics can flow. And at other times, they chase the popularity mm. so that they can monetize it. Yes, I think that's right. Uh, I think that, for example, in the history of the news industry, uh, we've gone from a period of relative scarcity in the middle of the 20th century. You had a handful of television stations and radio stations that had the power to reach tens of millions of people. But now the power of broadcast is democratized, and there are Twitter accounts and news feeds and Facebook pages, et cetera, et cetera, that have the power to essentially reach just as many people. And so it's not so much that we live in a purely viral world where everything is social and it's all one-to-one -one and one-to-two shares, but rather we live in a world where the power of broadcast has been democratized. And so now you have individuals whose powers of attention and powers of appeal, both sides of popularity, uh, are as large as some legacy media institutions. And then you tell us, don't listen to this, it's gone viral. There's nothing <laughs> viral about it. <laughs> one, of the, one of the most fun chapters to write, actually, was the chapter called The Viral Myth. I think what's happened uh, these days is that when something gets big out of nowhere, we say, oh, that's gone viral. We default to saying this. 
But viral has a very specific meaning in epidemiology. It means that I get you sick and you get two people sick and they get two people sick each. And this disease spreads over many, many, many generations of intimate shares. But there's another way that information spreads, and we're participating in it right now. It's a single source of news being broadcast to many people at once. Uh, the Super Bowl, for example, is a very famous, well-known broadcast. Nobody says of an advertisement in the Super Bowl, oh my God, that ad went viral in the Super Bowl. No, it was very clearly broadcast to 115 million people at once. So the question, I think, for people who are interested in popularity is, does information truly go viral or does the, do the biggest broadcast determine popularity? And when data scientists now can actually study the spread of a Twitter post or a Facebook post or a viral YouTube video, it turns out that when you look at that information cascade, that map of the idea catching on, it looks much more like a series of broadcasts with sort of social tendrils than it looks like a pure disease spreading. So I would like us to sort of shift the way that we talk about the spread of information online from purely viral to broadcasts that we don't always see. And I call them dark broadcasts. And I think we live in a world that is dominated by dark broadcasts. This 2017 Tech Nation interview features Derek Thompson, a senior editor at The Atlantic and author of Hitmakers, The Science of Popularity in the Age of Distraction. He's still at The Atlantic, but you might also catch him doing news analysis on NPR's national afternoon show, Here and Now. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. 5 Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancor. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, I speak with Dr. Levi Garraway, the chief medical officer of Genentech, about two recent FDA approvals in the area of rare diseases, often referred to simply by their initials, SMA and NMOSD. And then Dr. Thomas Rando will speak to us about what each and every one of our bodies is doing at this very minute, aging. He's the director of Glenn Laboratories for the Biology of Aging and the deputy director of the Stanford Center on Longevity. And he's co-founded a new company, Fountain Therapeutics, based on some very interesting science. Now let's turn to rare diseases. We don't think of them as getting the attention of pharmaceutical companies, simply because we say there's no market there and it's expensive to produce new drugs. In the U.S., it takes 12 to 15 years from the lab bench to an FDA approval. And the industry numbers say from $1 billion if you already have the money to two-plus billion if you have to go out and get venture capital to fund it. Then there's the failure rate. For every nine promising new drugs which enter phase one clinical trials, years later, only one drug will succeed. That's nine to one, making it through the three grueling phases required before the FDA will approve the drug for both safety to all who take it and efficacy 
does it work for those conditions the drug is meant for? So what about the drugs which are needed for rare diseases? Well, certainly the Orphan Drug Act has provided incentives for companies to work on diseases which have under 200,000 patients. But even then, what about rare diseases substantially under that threshold? To get a handle on drugs for lots of people versus drugs for just a few, and since I'm speaking with the chief medical officer of Genentech, let's look at a Genentech drug which you may have heard of, rituxan. It's used to treat a complement of autoimmune diseases, including rheumatoid arthritis and certain types of cancers. Just considering rheumatoid arthritis, for every 100,000 people in the U.S., 450 people suffer from it. And that's just one of rituxan's many uses. For the conditions we're talking about today, SMA, which is spinal muscular atrophy, 10 people out of 100,000. And NMOSD, neuromyelitis optica spectrum disorder, 1 to 10 out of 100,000 people. So there are the numbers. In terms of 100,000, that's 10 potential patients versus 450 plus. Across America, perhaps 30,000 potential patients at most versus several million potential patients all in for rituxan. And yet Genentech, who brought us rituxan, now brings us a treatment for SMA, as well as one for NMOSD. Dr. Levi Garraway is the chief medical officer of Genentech. Well, Dr. Garraway, welcome to Biotech Nation. Moira, thank you for having me. Today, Genentech is part of Hoffman LaRoche, but years ago, as an early biotech company, one of the first to go public, actually, there's a famous story about Herb Boyer, one of your, of your co-founders, and when he was asked how to pronounce it, is it Genentech or Genentech, he responded famously, pronounce it any way you want, just buy the stock. <laughs> <laughs> My question is, have you worked that out yet? Yeah, you know I've never been asked that question. I think I usually say Genentech. It's almost like potato, potato. Like there might be context where I might say it the other way. So there's no company, you know, you don't, you'll get thrown out in your butt if you say it. There is no edict that says thou shalt pronounce it this way. Okay. Well, now, now we have it. <laughs> that means I'm still confused. Oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> but we'll go with Genentech today. We'll go with Genentech today. You watch. I'll probably screw that up. <laughs> I probably that. will as well. There you go. Now, while Genentech is often known for its well-known medicines, and, and people have heard of Rituxan or Herceptin for some unfortunately un- common medical conditions, you also develop medicines for very small populations of patients, very rare diseases, and you've had two successes in that area lately. Let's talk about those successes. Absolutely. So you're correct. We've had two medicines. One is called Evrisd, and the other is called InSpring, and each of them is meant to treat uh, a neurologic condition. One of them is a rare genetic disease, and the other is a rare kind of inflammatory disease, but you're absolutely right. But, but what they have in common, though, is that we understood the science of both diseases well enough to design a treatment that we thought could have a, a quite a meaningful impact on uh, people with the disease. I think the, this whole idea of following the science to try to make 
meaningful advancements for patients, whether or not it's a common disease or a rare disease. That's really what drove that. Now, let's talk about SMA first. What do those letters stand for? What's the condition? Absolutely. SMA stands for spinal muscular atrophy. So that's why we call it SMA, because it's a little tongue-tied to say spinal muscular atrophy all the time. But this genetic disease results in a mutation in a protein which is required for proper function of nerve cells, specifically nerve cells that control movement. So if you have a mutation in that protein, the nerve cells that help us move around, move our hands and feet and sit up and those kinds of things, they start not functioning well and eventually they can die out. So that's the problem that people have with SMA. That Sometimes it happens quickly, like even with babies or toddlers. They, they start not being able to move uh, and even sit up and even breathe over time. So in other instances, it's a little bit more gradual and so it happens over the course of childhood or adulthood. But either way, that's the problem. You lose the ability to have proper uh, movement. And so what if RISD does is essentially allows a replacement protein to get generated. So it's not the same protein, but it's kind of like, you know, if you have to take your car into the shop and you need a loaner car, or if you had a brand new laptop and it doesn't work, and so your IT department gives you a loaner laptop. I got a loaner right now, and it works kind of, there's kind of like not right, but I'm getting my work done. That's right. So it's not the exact protein, but it's a similar protein you're giving. Yeah, it, it's good enough to kind of get the job done. I mean, yes, it's not what you'd prefer to have, but it, it gets the job done. And the whole idea of giving a replacement protein, that's a first-of-its-kind medicine. Most medicines, you, what you're doing is you're, you're blocking the function of some abnormal or overactive uh, protein. This is unusual in that you're, you're allowing a replacement protein to be made in these nerve cells. Now, let me ask you, what have they done to date? Is it that unusual, this treatment? I would say that it's quite unusual to have a medicine that works by causing a new protein or a new variation of a protein to be made. Anywhere, Most, any, anywhere, any yes. disease. Anywhere. Most of the time you're blocking the function of an existing protein to kind of settle a disease down a little bit. Well, before this medicine, what was the standard of care? Well, the good news for patients with SMA is that there have been new treatments to come along uh, over the past few years. Uh, however, those treatments still require patients to visit healthcare provider, to visit a clinic to be administered. So for SMA, the, uh, you're, you're taking a medicine by mouth or by feeding tube once a day, and that can be done, of course, at home. That doesn't require somebody to go out and go to a hospital or to a healthcare provider. And while we're still dealing with this pandemic, that's actually an important consideration for many people. When I think about technology, we always say better, faster, cheaper. Sometimes it's just better. In this case, independent of anything else it may be doing, it's better and that I can just do it at home. And that's better all the time, COVID or not. <laughs> well, certainly we, we hope that the, the convenience element uh, will be helpful for many people. But also, th this is also the first uh, available therapy for people who extend into later into childhood and adulthood. Most of the prior therapies were approved for patients, either infants or patients under the age of two years of age. So this now uh, provides a, a treatment opportunity for a large percentage of people who are living with SMA who haven't really had the opportunity to have to experience one of the new breakthroughs in the past. Yeah, the success means that they can live. That's the bottom line. The success means that they either they can live. And so, for example, for some of the younger patients who otherwise would have needed a, a ventilator after a year or two of age, that we one of the 
findings in our clinical trials is that we can prevent that in, in many uh, babies or toddlers, but also people who have been living with it, uh, they are also benefiting. They're, they're seeing their disease stabilize. So they're, they're not seeing uh, sometimes the decline of, of motor function that they had seen before, uh, but as measured in various ways. So we think that we are seeing benefits across the broader population of people with SMA, you measure those benefits differently depending on how old they are. This is a really good question. I mean, this is a serious disease. You don't withdraw treatment from these people to see if your drug will work. How do you go about doing a clinical trial? Well, the clinical trial, that the way we designed it, there are well-established ways of measuring whether proper movement is happening or if it's being lost, how quickly is it lost? So for example, in the study that we did, uh, we could show that the, the ability of an infant to sit up without support for several seconds, for five seconds, which, you know, at some point in the natural disease course of SMA, infants lose that ability. Well, we were able to, to preserve that or in, in a significant percentage of infants uh, who, who took Evrisd. Similarly, this issue of needing breathing support, needing ventilation to help you breathe. Uh, uh, for a lot of babies over after a year or after a couple years, uh, they need that. Well, we were able to uh, help many infants to survive without permanent ventilation, and we measured that at 12 months. We measured it at 23 months. These are some examples. There are many different ways, of course, you can measure movement, but those were some examples of meaningful differences that could be made by this medicine. And, and it's not hard to imagine why this is the kind of thing you want to achieve for patients. A lot of excitement here. Uh, but you really had to take several years to actually see is there a difference or a decline? And uh, were they on other treatments? So in some cases, pa this was the first treatment that patients had been given. In other cases, they had been given other treatments, and, and then this was given afterwards. And we could see these kinds of results regardless of whether they had been on uh, a prior treatment or not. Well, you've got to believe. You've got to believe to make that happen. Of course, you started with animal studies. What did you study Absolutely. in the animals, and which animals? Well, so as with uh, most medicines, there is a, a relatively standard approach of how you... So you start in the laboratory. Is the medicine doing what we hope it could do? In a little protein? dish. In a little dish to <laughs> cells, exactly. Can you see that? And then when you go into animals, and actually there are also animal models of the disease that you can study. And so that was done. So can we see, do we see an effect in animals that we would hope to see in patients? So that Do you was, mean by a model, do you mean like on a computer or? No, actually what we mean is that you can, uh, using genetic engineering technologies, you can create mice that have characteristics of oh. the disease and you can see, well, if I give this medicine or this, or this chemical, it's not a medicine yet, can I change that? Can I make the symptoms better? And so those, those are often studies that are done. Uh, and then we, of course, want to make sure, is it safe? So do we see any worrisome side effects? And you always start in animals before you go into people. And so all of that was done. And, uh, and so this is where we had great partnership with uh, a company, PTC Therapeutics, and, and we, we started working together with them early on to do these kinds of studies and, and finally end up with a medicine that not only was doing what we needed in terms of the replacement protein, but also safe. We, we didn't see worrisome side effects 
So this is... Uh, babies will let you know. <laughs> well, babies will, will let you know one way or the other. Uh, but, of course, you're always nervous. You, you, you may see, you may do animal studies and say, oh, this doesn't look too bad. It looks pretty safe in animals. You never know. People, it's different. Until you dose the first patients, you never know. And now let's go to the other condition. N-M-O-S-D. See yes. how careful I am to make you say all the terms here? This is why we use acronyms. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> neuromyelitis Optica Spectrum Disorder, N-M-O-S-D. So this is also a neurologic condition, but it's not a genetic condition that you're born with. It can happen over time. It's sort of like a inflammatory or autoimmune disease where you get this abnormal inflammatory reaction that's it's periodic it can sometimes re relapse it can flare up uh, at various times but when it flares up it can cause damage to your nervous system in various ways and in fact that because it's an inflammatory response the damage sometimes it can be permanent so so really these relapses it's not like oh you get a flare and then it completely resolves and you're back to normal sometimes the damage can be permanent so this is actually although it's a rare disease it, it can be a debilitating disease so in spring similarly based on scientific advances it, it's designed to block a pathway that cells that immune cells use uh, to do inflammation, which, of course, inflammation is part of the natural immune response, but when it's abnormal, it can be a problem. But if you block that pathway, you pathway can... Pathway into a cell? Pathway meaning the approach that the cell uses to, um, to, to go around and do what it normally does, which is... So the normal function of, of inflammatory cells is if you get a wound, it heals the wound, or if you become infected, they get rid of the infection. Uh, and that's all good, but if they start uh, misbehaving or, or being too active in different ways. It yeah. can, that can lead to autoimmune disease of various types. And so that's kind of what's happening in NMOSD, except that it's tacky, attacking nerves that you need to move or to sense uh, things. And so that's the problem. You get too much activity or, of the wrong kind of inflammation, and now all of a sudden you have this problem where you're, you're, you're having neurological, uh, whether it's movement or yeah. Yeah. Uh, that kind of thing. So, so basically in spring, can prevent those kinds of relapses. And, and we, our clinical trial was really one of the largest of its kind in patients with NMOSD. And we showed that we could reduce the frequency, the, the number of relapses that would happen, and also uh, extend the amount of time that patients are free of relapses. So, of course, both of those are, are important milestones in a, in a disease like this. Now, how do you take this drug? So, Inspring is it's given in what we call a pre-filled syringe. So uh, a patient can, can do a, an injection under the skin. Uh, they are taught by a healthcare provider. They do it themselves or they can have a, a caregiver do it for them. And so you, you do an injection under the skin every month. And, uh, but well, once that, a month? Once a month, yes. So, but, th but this too is an example of a medicine that you don't have to go to see a doctor to get it. You can be trained to give it yourself or to have a caregiver give it in your home. So, so both Evrisd and Inspring are examples of any time, as you pointed out, but especially in the pandemic, the ability to, to be at home and have access to medicines that can be very important in terms of uh, your disease. Prior to this, what would the standard of care be? So as, as for... Um, as for SMA, NMOSD has had uh, therapies to, that could be given, but I think what is important for for Inspring is the to have a clinical trial, a randomized study that's this large, uh, and to show specifically 
reductions uh, in relapses. Uh, the, the, no, no prior medicine has been studied in this way and therefore have been, been shown to have the, what we call endpoints. There are other medicines that, are, that have been used to manage the relapses of this patient. So, so there are, yes, you, you can give other medicines either uh, regularly or in the setting of relapses that have been used. But, th but this is the first time that we've run a trial of this type to understand if I give chronic monthly uh, injection of a medicine, can I control the relapse rate? You know, these rare diseases frequently have, not only, not only by definition do they have very few people, it's like it's extremely difficult to get enough people to really understand if the new treatment will work or not. You just, you, they're already in fragile health, and then you're doing, you're trying to say, well, we're going to experiment here. I mean, this is a challenge. Absolutely. I mean, it, in, even in rare diseases, those diseases don't show up and, uh, and affect patients in the same way. So if you don't do a study that's large enough to really be able to say, if I treat patients this way versus a what we call a control group that's treated a different way, we can't really say, how well does this medicine work? And so that was what was done with InSpring. And because of that, we can, we can say very clearly, this is, we can reduce relapse, we can, we can meaningfully increase the, the time that patients as a whole are free of relapses. Yeah. And that's, that's the level that you need to really be confident about uh, medicines that you're giving. Well, how much new science in both these cases did it take to develop these drugs? In both of these cases, uh, for example, when you go back to the early, let's go to Everisdy for, for a second. The initial set of studies that showed that a medicine like this might be possible date back to the mid to late 1990s. So we're talking a couple of decades, uh, all the way from the beginning to having an approved medicine, which is not uncommon. And, uh, and similarly, with, uh, with InSpring, there, the, the understanding of, the, of how, that, uh, how NMOSD works, there, there were fundamental scientific discoveries and then uh, studies in animals and then in patients. It, it's a, it, all of this happens over a period of years. So, but the good news is, of course, that because of our investment as a society in understanding science, when you get these breakthroughs, we have the ability often to make uh, medicines with a, uh, we have tools and approaches that we never had before. And that's, that's obviously what we try to, try to do and, and help patients that way. These are never going to be blockbuster drugs. I don't know if everyone at Genentech knows this. I'm telling you, you're not gonna sell this to millions of people. This is just not gonna happen. The classic thing we think of with a biopharmaceutical company is come up with another blockbuster. Why is Genentech working on conditions like these? The, the way that we try to approach any, any disease that we work on is, has the science advanced to a point where if we made a therapeutic, there could be a really meaningful difference made to those patients? If the answer to that question is yes, that usually is a Th that is a major reason to pursue a program. And our, our sense has been that uh, if, you, if you can make a major advance for patients, the economics tends to work itself out. 
but that's really what we're aiming for is uh, patients who have serious diseases where there's not adequate treatment. If the science tells us there's a solution that could make a real difference, that that's a... Put your head down and work on it. Exactly. <laughs> Terrific. Well, Levi, thank you so much for joining me. I hope you come back and see us again. Thank you, Maura. Really appreciate it. Dr. Levi Garraway is the Chief Medical Officer of Genentech. More information is available at gene.com. That's G-E-N-E, gene.com. More information about rare diseases is available from the National Organization for Rare Disorders on the web at rarediseases.org. You're listening to Tech Nation. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available on NPR One, Spotify, and Alexa Podcasts, among others. Direct links are available at technation.com. In the second half of our show, we hear about how our cells are aging and the remarkable research which may lead to relieving some of the insults of age. Stay with us. You're listening to Tech Nation. Dr. Thomas Rando is a professor of neurology and neurological sciences at Stanford University School of Medicine, as well as director of the Glenn Laboratories for the Biology of Aging and the deputy director of the Stanford Center on Longevity. He is also the co-founder of Fountain Therapeutics. Well, Tom, welcome to Tech Nation. My pleasure to be here. I went out to your website, and it says very prominently, something is the predominant challenge to our health and quality of life. It doesn't say obesity. It doesn't say drug and alcohol use. It doesn't say poverty. It says aging is the predominant challenge to our health and quality of life. Everybody does that all the time. I mean, aging really is uh, the major risk factor for all of these diseases that we recognize in the country that are huge burdens on the population, huge um, challenges to individuals, heart disease, cancer, Alzheimer's disease, these are all diseases that you just don't see in young people. And you see them increasing with every decade in life. And 
people over the age of 80 typically have two or more of these chronic diseases. When we say two or more of these chronic diseases, uh, can they possibly be related? Commonly, there are connections between chronic diseases, sometimes, for example, inflammation. You can see that in multiple chronic diseases. So it's possible that there are common threads that link many of these age-related diseases. On the other hand, they often also occur individually. So it's not as if having heart disease makes it much more likely that you'll have cancer, or if you have cancer, that you'll much more likely have Alzheimer's disease. And yet, just because of the incidence, the older we get, the more likely we are to accumulate, essentially, more and more of these diseases. So if I understand the kind of work you're doing, it's our very cells which are aging. I mean, there's no doubt about that. So if you were to look at a brain or a heart of a 90-year-old under a microscope and compare the cells in those tissues to the same tissues from a 40-year-old, you can clearly see the effects of aging on cells. And so we really have been studying what it means for a cell to age, the cell itself. And are there ways that you can actually slow that aging process? Are there ways we can intervene? to arrest the aging process, and even sometimes we wonder, can we reverse the aging process? Can you look at my cells and tell me how old I am? Ah, no, that's a good question. Um, with some degree of accuracy, um, but I could be off by decades. So it's not as if <laughs> I could say... you are. <laughs> <laughs> it's not as if I could say, you know, this is an 87-year-old cell and this is a 63-year-old cell, but that's actually really one of the things we focus on is, can we begin to identify the characteristics of a cell based on the age of the person that it was from. And to some extent, you can do that um, quite accurately if you get enough information to process and, to, and to, if you look at enough cells. So we can do all the cosmetic surgery we want, but your cells are saying, good luck with that. Because <laughs> we're just I mean, going to keep aging. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, you know, that's kind of the fundamental question is, are there these underlying processes that are going on that are going on in essentially, essentially um, irreversibly and unidirectionally um, that underlie these kind of loss of function and these diseases that we see with aging. Um, but e even that fundamental process, the question is, is there something we can do as we understand it to slow it down and to, and to basically make old cells behave like young cells? Now, let's start with the science. And I understand that uh, part of this science is quite old, maybe into the middle of the 19th century. What science are we talking about? So um, in the early 2000s, we did some experiments um, that use this technique called parabiosis. Now, and let parabiosis, me just interrupt. Let me just interrupt yeah. you for a second. Yeah. For you people who are not quite sure you like animal research, why don't you go get a cup of coffee or <laughs> turn it down for a little bit and then rejoin us later? But for the rest of you, listen to this. This is going to blow your mind. Go ahead. Okay, so this is why Morris said you might want to uh, take a seat. So what we were doing is we were actually surgically connecting young animals to old animals in this technique called parabiosis. Um, and that technique has been around since the mid-19th century. And it has been used over the decades really to study a lot of different aspects of biology and, and medicine, um, understanding fields ranging from endocrinology to immunology. And we use this to study aging. And, and the way we did this is we would connect a young animal to an old animal, and they would essentially become like conjoined twins. So they would have one 
common circulatory system. So the blood would flow from one animal to the other. And now how did you do that? I mean, were these mice? What were these? These were mice. These were mice. And so you just kind of, I mean, it's probably more complicated than this, but basically you just sort of picked up the skin flap and put them together, or did you literally join tissue inside? It's actually more simple, like you you initially said. So we just basically open up the skin and staple the skin together. And so they're side by side, and they spontaneously develop connections in their blood vessels from one animal to the other. So we don't even do that surgically. That happens over the course of a few weeks. And when that happens, the animals are sharing their circulatory factors, what's in their blood. And what we found, which was really striking, is that when you connect a young animal to an old animal, the the old mouse starts to acquire features of the young mouse. And conversely, there's no free lunch here, the young mouse starts to acquire features of an old mouse. So it seems as if in the one case, there's sort of a a rejuvenation going on. And in the other case, there looks like it's an accelerated aging. So here we have the young and the old. And over time, they take on the characteristics of the other. And we believe it's, we're seeing it transferred in the blood. Yeah. And and experiments that we and others did um, really started to convince us that there really were components of the blood that were being shared that were the Essentially, the the information was being carried. So, for example, if you take blood from a young animal and transfuse it repeatedly into an old animal, you can get similar effects. So just a a, a series of, of recurrent blood transfusions can give some of the effect that we see with this parabiosis technique. So it really does seem as if the blood is carrying the information to make old cells younger and young cells older. But how do we know what it is that's making all the difference? Well, that's that's the million-dollar question. So if we look, blood is complicated. So if you look at blood, and I'm talking about not just the cells in the blood, like the red blood cells and the white blood cells, but all the other um, material, proteins and lipids and other things that are just being carried in the blood, it's very, very complex. And so it's not simple just to say, okay, let's just go find out what's in old blood that's making young cells age faster, or what's in young blood that seems to be rejuvenating old, old cells. So we've, we've started to, to look in this, and we and others have tried to simplify what's in blood to identify perhaps proteins or other components that might be making um, or having this effect and really driving these, uh, these aging processes in one direction or the other. Um, so this is, this is ongoing. Um, There are companies that have been formed. There's a lot of academic research uh, in two ways, both trying to identify what these magic factors are, how many of them there are, how many are needed, and is there really a balance between young factors and old factors that that make this difference? Now, of course, you do a lot of research at the university level. You're a professor of neurology and neurological sciences at Stanford University School of Medicine. You direct the Glenn Laboratories for the Biology of Aging, and you're deputy director of the Stanford Center on Longevity. So you're a busy guy doing a lot of things at the university and research and teaching and everything else. But Here we have Fountain Therapeutics. How do you get the research over into a company? That's always a challenge. And and in fact, that's sort of called the valley of death, where you have all (laughs) these interesting findings that are happening in the university, and not many of them make their way really into therapies for humans. So um, that's the challenge. I mean, this, this idea for this company came to me really a long time ago, really, when we first had these 
these results with parabiosis. But at that time, it was difficult to found a company on aging. It was m much more, um, it was considered much more difficult and if not impossible to ever really develop therapeutics related to, to aging biology. And that's changed really over the last 20 years. And now there are many companies that are in this, in this space. And really it was, it was a, a combination of that, you know, the advancement of the science, the development of uh, basically investors who would be willing to uh, fund companies that were in, in this space. And in our case, Fountain Therapeutics that we founded, um, also the development of a lot of um, artificial intelligence that we use to help us really identify many of these processes that are occurring that we think are accelerated aging or rejuvenation. So we really took the, the data um, that we had published, so it was really public data, and we just said, can we, can we develop a company based on these ideas that would allow us to screen for drugs, for example, mm -hmm. or screen for things that are in blood that can drive a cell to become older or younger. And that's essentially what Fountain Therapeutics is, is about. Now, you mentioned that word, AI, artificial intelligence. Tell us, what are you doing? So... Um, at Fountain, really, it's machine learning. And so let me, let me give you a, a, an analogy. So let's say you take a thousand pictures of young people and a thousand pictures of old people, and you teach a computer, this is what a young person looks like, this is what an old person looks like. And then you take a picture of a person the computer's never seen, and you say, is this a young person or is this an old person? So computers are, are very good at learning that kind of information and then being able to take new information and, and put it into a category. So, for example, a young person or an old person. So we've basically, using a microscope and a computer, taught the computer what cells look like that are young and old and, and everything in between. And so what we can do is we can take a cell, we can treat it with a drug, and we can ask the computer now, has that cell become younger or older? And it's very good at telling us which direction the drug is, is driving the cell. So that's the machine learning, the artificial intelligence part that 20 years ago, we'd have, we would have had to do this the old-fashioned way and, and look at it ourselves and try and say, I can tell the difference between a young cell and an old cell, but the computer is much, much better and much, much faster. So we can screen just thousands and thousands of drugs or thousands and thousands of proteins and basically try and find those compounds that are the best at rejuvenating or the best at accelerating aging um, based on that, that platform. Now, when we think about machine learning or AI or big data, we're thinking about these are things computers do. And when we think about looking at lots of molecules and blood and anything like that, we're like, well, that's sort of in the organic field. That's in a test tube or on a plate or, you know, in a little little cell, little little tube of something. Um, how do you get from the blood and the cells and whatever proteins, whatever you're looking at, which is or, which are organic, which are organic, to everything in the computer? We have a platform at the, at the company which basically is exactly what you just described, which is a, a, an interface between a microscope and a computer. So we put the cells into this mi big microscope. Um, it captures the images as, you know, as images, just like you would have on your phone. It basically transfers those images to a computer and basically says, um, look at the features of this image 
and learn it to be either young or old. And so it really is the computer talking to the microscope and the microscope talking to the computer. So that's, you know, that's a, a part of the process that we're not even involved in. We, we designed it, but now we press a button and we say, okay, here are a million cells. Tell us, you know, how old they are basically based on what, what you've already learned from what we've taught you. Now, you've also talked about you might have a, another compound come in, a, a previous drug, a something that's already been proven, perhaps used uh, in, an, in some other way. You're also looking at that impact on cells, right? We're looking at the impact of, of either known drugs or novel drugs. So what you say is true. There are drugs that are used for, you know, treating heart disease or treating cholesterol that who knows, they might actually be um, also useful in terms of this biology of aging. So, you know, we've screened a lot of known drugs and a lot of drugs that have not yet made it to the market but have been tested in, in animals. And then we've screened drugs that have not yet been tested in, in any way. Um, but it's possible that there are compounds that are in use that may have some efficacy in this kind of application of, of, of rejuvenating cells. I mean, for example, you know, one of, the, one of the drugs that's been in the news a lot is this drug metformin, which has been around for just decades and decades and decades for treating diabetes. And yet it was found when studying the effects of metformin in cells and in worms and in flies that it seems to extend their lifespan. So in a way, um, one never knows what one drug might do. It's been used for one thing, but it might have another application. So um, we keep an open mind as to whether, you know, the drugs that are in common use, drugs that are, are rarely used, drugs that have actually been used and now are not used anymore, all might have some um, some efficacy this way. So we've really screened a whole range of, of drugs in that in that way. So let me understand this. It's not just a fountain of youth, although you are fountain therapeutics. <laughs> it's not like, well, we're going to take every cell in your body and make it young. It's, it's sort of those things which contribute to the maladies of old age, the, the rheumatoid arthritis, perhaps, and uh, the diabetes and uh, any number of things, uh, heart disease, you name it, uh, to say, if we can change that, so the path of that disease, or even the current activity of that disease, then you've really got, that's really what you're going for. I would say even more, we're, we're going for uh, a treatment that reduces the risk for even getting the disease. And this comes back to the idea that age itself is what's called a risk factor. So being 80 versus being 50, there's a higher risk for developing a disease. So even before you get the disease, you're becoming susceptible to that disease. And if we're successful, we would actually be treating that susceptibility. So we would love to think, and this might be different for different people, in other words, it might be different drugs for different people depending on their race, depending on their body mass, depending on their um, their diet, that different people would require um, different treatments that would maintain their low susceptibility to disease for a longer period of time. And for a longer period of time, we would love to think that we could keep the incidence of heart disease that one has at the age of 30 for decades and decades and decades. 
or the risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. You know, instead of the risk going up with every decade, we push that out. So your risk at, at 90 is the same as your risk at 50. So we're not, at this point, focusing on any particular disease. We're focusing on this issue of age being a susceptibility for disease. Okay, so how do you put this in a clinical trial, get it past the FDA? I'm scratching my head here. How do you do that? As you should, because <laughs> we scratch our head about this a lot. I mean, this is, this is a, a, a current challenge for the field of aging research and therapeutics for aging. Um, the FDA does not at this point recognize aging as a disease. And we can talk about that, whether it is I'll or not. I'll call them up. I'll get that changed Tuesday. <laughs> see, Don't worry. You can see, yeah, whether they, okay. <laughs> see how they think about that. Um, but it, it's not even possible to, to um, get a, a trial approved in which the outcome um, is, is some aspect of aging. So you can't say to the FDA, uh, I want to treat, you know, a thousand normal people at the age of 50 and then treat them for some number of years and measure these you know, these aspects of aging. The FDA is much, much better at looking at individual diseases and saying, you know, I want to treat these thousand people with heart disease and show that they get better. So the field is really at this interface right now in trying to come up with ways, and I don't mean to fault the FDA. I mean, that's, that's how it developed, and it has not yet figured out with us a way to do this. Um, but that's where the interface is. How do we take these ideas of this issue of susceptibility and measure it in a way that the FDA agrees, okay, that's a legitimate measure that we want to treat. And so we're not there yet, but that's that's a big challenge. And I think that's something that will change in the next 10 years, okay. if not sooner. Mm -hmm. Well, the, everyone at the FDA is also getting older. So let's <laughs> <laughs> get something, <laughs> something to do with that. Um, now, you've screened... I guess thousands and thousands of molecules, um, and of course you, you you're developing you know the algorithms to look at them uh, and the factors and all that kind of thing. But you were looking for certain things. You may do you think you'd go back and look at the same ones again and again? Maybe looking at different aspects. I mean, we we will look at different aspects in this sense that um, we are currently screening these compounds using certain kinds of cells. But the body has you know, thousands of different kinds of cells. So even if we find that these drugs that we call hits, meaning, meaning they work, they, they seem to rejuvenate you know, old cells from the blood vessel, for example, do those same drugs do the same thing? Do they rejuvenate heart cells and brain cells and liver cells? So we, we will continue to expand the screening to get a better understanding of how a drug might work and which cells it might work on. I mean, you know, in our, in our dreams, in the ideal world, if we get a hit and it works on one cell, it will work on all cells. Do we know that? We don't know that yet. So that's something we have to continue to explore. But you, you think that might be true, huh? <laughs> you know, I, I think it might be true because, you know, every cell ages and, and you know, aging is universal. I mean, you can look, you know, across animal species. So if we're right and if we're really looking at this fundamental process that drives these changes over time, then if we can reverse it in one cell, it's my belief that it's likely we'll reverse it in all cells. But that remains to be proven. 
Well, my I have one brother and one sister, and you begin to understand that. Uh, well, you're really more like the, that end, end of the family up through the the women, and you're taking after these guys over here, and you're taking after you know you can you can trace it. You can see the differential in the mix that you're you're coming out of different portions of your family, and part of that is you know uh, how you age and how long you age. We have a part of our family that lives a really, really long time versus another part that's sort of a normal age span. And so I think this is a really interesting question, you know, for us. We've been, you know, all excited about, you know, 23andMe and things like that. What's our DNA? But the whole idea of trajectory and how fast are we aging, um, it's clear that it's different for different people, even in the same family. I mean, that's absolutely true. In fact, if you take genetically identical people, twins, or if you take genetically identical animals, meaning they're truly inbred genetically identical, and you just age them, and you watch how they age and when they die, there's variability there. So clearly, you know, there's there's a lot of variability in terms of how we age, even if even for genetically identical individuals. But um, for genetically distinct individuals, that variability is, is even greater. And, you know, we're very interested in that. Basically, the the kind of heterogeneity, the variability of aging. And, and do we age because, you know, one of the tissues in our body ages faster? Do some people age because their liver ages faster? And do some people age differently because their their brain ages faster? And there's actually some data that was really that came out of, actually out of Stanford uh, not long ago that suggested that there are different kind of phenotypes of aging based on um, the organ system that seems to be driving the process. Now, if you're lucky and you're from a family that has, you know, great genes and, and you have so-called centenarians, people who live to be 100 in your family, there's a good chance that you will have a longer, healthier life. So the genes play an important role, but genes are not the only factor that determine that trajectory. Do you think that every year we'll go in and uh, when we get our annual blood test, should we go for an annual uh, exam and, you know, they take all that blood out of you and they have reams and reams. It used to be of paper. Now it's all online. They keep, you know, check it out. This is what we found. Um, do you think they'll also do that with our cells? Or do you think this is more, a little more like DNA where once we see your cells, we kind of know, we kind of know what they are? I think that there's, it's very likely that over time there will be tests that you can get routinely that will tell you something about your so-called biological age. Okay, what does that mean? So, you know, for, you know, for a 40-year-old, um, there are 40-year-olds who, as you were saying before, are aging more rapidly and aging less rapidly. So you're 40 years old by chronological aging, namely the number of years since you were born, but this issue of biological age is clearly important that uh, you can have um, really the features of an older person or a younger person on average. And so there's no doubt that we can, we can measure this now in many ways. We, we can sort of develop this readout of biological age and um, you, can, you can 
basically tell someone that. Now, is that deterministic? Meaning once you know that, is that a done deal? Not at all. I mean, we know for sure that you can change that trajectory. So you can change that trajectory with diet, with drugs, with exercise. So it's, you know, it's useful to know, but I think that um, it's not like a DNA test that is a fixed in time, this is your DNA. This issue of biological age really gives you information that you can act on. I mean, you, you can change that trajectory. And with any luck at all, Fountain Therapeutics can give you something to change what that composition is. That's our goal. And that, that's exactly right. I mean, if, if this works, if the, 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 the direction we're taking works, one could, for example, get that blood test that tells you your biological age and then start taking a therapeutic and you show that the rate of aging has changed or slowed, ideally slowed uh, based on, on that treatment. Now, we have to tell everybody, this isn't coming out next week. you got a long road ahead, right? We have a long road ahead. We're just starting to screen compounds now. We will take those compounds in the next year, start treating mice. Uh, and then from those studies in mice, we will pick compounds that we would take into humans, and we would decide at that point what we would treat. As we were saying before, we can't just treat humans for their aging problem, we would, we'll have to start by treating humans with some specific age-related disease, which we will, we will determine. So, so yeah, this is not around the corner. Um, we, have, we have a long way to go. And, and yet, I'd, I would say that the, the optimistic view is there are compounds that we, they're already in use. And I mentioned metformin. Um, one, one could even argue that uh, cholesterol-lowering agents have this kind of feature of changing the, the trajectory of, of biological aging. There are a lot of compounds that are in use that were not developed for this but have some of these effects. So even though it's a ways away, it's, it's, not, it's not so much science fiction as it is re-looking at current science and thinking of it in a somewhat different way and certainly thinking about therapeutics in a somewhat different way. Well, Tom, this has been terrific. I hope you come back and see us again, will you? I absolutely will. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Dr. Thomas Rando is the co-founder and chair of the Board of Directors of Fountain Therapeutics. More information is available at FountainTX.com. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancor.